This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Robinhood is on a mission to democratize finance for all. In 2020, Robinhood co-founder Vlad Tenev told CNBC, Our belief is, the more we lower the barriers to entry, the more we level the playing field and allow people to invest their money at a younger age, the better off our economy will be, and the better off society will be, because we kind of live in the intersection of capitalism, democracy, and innovation. And I think it's a very interesting place to be. At the time, Robinhood was well on its way to becoming one of the most, if not the most, famous trading app. But that interview was before meme stock trading rattled the markets in January 2021, and before market structure issues became headline news. Vlad was right. Robinhood is at the intersection of capitalism, democracy, and innovation. It is a fascinating place to be, and it also happens to be a perfect topic for the Insecurities podcast. We're going to talk with the Deputy General Counsel at Robinhood Markets about all things Robinhood. Meme stocks, going public, regulatory reform and enforcement, it's all on the table today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Uh, I'm excited for today's episode. You know, Robinhood is one of those topics that is always in the news. It has come up on a number of our podcast episodes. Uh, So it's exciting to actually have somebody from Robinhood come on today to talk about some of those issues that that really seem to fascinate the public, or maybe just the investing public, certainly some of the so-called apes out there. That's right. Um, so so let, let's get into it. Uh, why don't you kick us off with just a little bit of background on today's guest? That's right. We are joined today by Lucas Moskovitz, a vice president and deputy general counsel at Robinhood Markets. In that role, Lucas oversees litigation and government and regulatory affairs for Robinhood. He previously held several roles at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, including as the agency's chief of staff under Chairman Jay Clayton and as a senior counsel in the Division of Enforcement. Lucas also previously served as chief investigative counsel for the Senate Banking Committee and counsel for the House Financial Services Committee. And before joining Robinhood, Lucas was a partner in the Securities Department at Wilmer Hale. Lucas, welcome to Insecurities. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right. So if you're listening to this podcast, I have no doubt you know about Robinhood. I'm wondering if there are any listeners out there, Kurt, who don't know what Robinhood is, but have listened to 54 episodes of our podcast today. But just in case, just in case we get the odd click through from somebody who's not sure what's going on, a quick rundown. We're going to do it as quick as we possibly can. So everybody knows where we are, what Robinhood is. All right. So Robinhood is an investing app. It's a place where investors can buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and now cryptocurrencies. And Robinhood, as I said, is on a mission to, quote, democratize finance for all, end quote. In recent years, Robinhood has become a major player. Time Magazine reported this year that the investing app has 21 million customers and $100 billion in assets. 
And if those numbers don't impress you, Chris, it's worth noting too that for several weeks in 2021, Robinhood was the most downloaded app in the country, higher than even the mighty TikTok. I am impressed, Kurt. I am impressed. <laughs> All right. Robinhood has been incredibly successful, at least in part because it pioneered commission-free trades of stocks, ETFs, and cryptocurrencies. Robinhood was founded on the belief that everyone should be welcome to participate in the financial system, and it's working to create a modern financial services platform for everyone, regardless of their wealth, income, or background. These themes are going to be important as we move forward, so I want to dig into those concepts just a little bit more. It really is at the core of what Robinhood is building. So for context, here's how Robinhood described its objectives in public disclosures. The stock market is widely recognized as one of the greatest wealth creators of the last century. But systemic barriers to investing, like expensive commissions, minimum balance requirements, and complicated, jargon-filled paperwork, have dissuaded millions of people from feeling welcome or able to participate. Robinhood has set out to change this. We use technology to deliver a new way for people to interact with the financial system. We believe investing should be familiar and welcoming, with a simple design and an intuitive interface so that customers are empowered to achieve their goals. We started with a revolutionary, bold brand and design, and the Robinhood app now makes investing approachable for millions. All right, so that is Robinhood in a nutshell. Don't know if I could have done it much faster than that, but like I said, if you're listening, I'm sure you know what it is. Uh, Chris, why don't I stop talking? Let's let's get to our guest. Lucas, uh, we want to talk more about kind of Robinhood's mission and business model. You know, everybody sees the the feather right on the screen or, or, or gets the app. But talk to us a bit about Robinhood's customer base. You know, we, we're hearing a lot about the folks that are involved with Robinhood. Who are the people subscribing, signing up, and, and utilizing the platform? Yeah, look, so you said it. It's, uh, you know, 21, 22, uh, about 22 million um, we call them net funded accounts, right? Customers who have money on the platform and, and are and are active on the platform. Um, so, you know, it, it's really cool to think about that, right? Um, I don't know if I could have, you know, uh, ever imagined a time when I was, you know, doing various jobs over the past several years in government or in the private sector, ever thinking about uh, a mobile brokerage platform having 22 million customers. Um, you know, our customers are really impressive, right? We've got uh, about half of those are first-time investors, um, which is really an amazing thing. Um, and I think objectively, uh, despite you know all the all the noise we hear these days about retail investors, I think that's just objectively a really good thing. It's a good thing for the people who are getting involved in the markets. A good thing for the markets themselves, and a good thing I think for the economy uh, as we think about you know how to how to continue to grow in this country and close the investing gap, close the wealth gap. In addition to that, um, you know, the, the customers we have, um, a lot of them are starting younger. They're bringing smaller amounts of money onto the platform to start with. I think we uh, have a median account size of about $250, and the average account's about $5,000. So compare that to kind of one of your incumbent brokerage firms, and it's going to be quite uh, different in terms of the customer profile. Um, you know, our customers are, are, again, starting out with lower amounts of money. Uh, they're building their portfolios over time. They're primarily trading um, stocks and ETFs, uh, publicly traded, right? So, you know, again, there's a lot of memes out there. You, you've got all these day traders piling into apps like Robinhood and they're um, trading, you know, constantly and, and taking an ordered risk. And, and you know, the, the information and data that's available to us um, does not um, support that, that meme. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it more supports the idea that 
uh, customers are really in this for the long term on the whole. So again, uh, our customers are are largely trading um, stocks and ETFs. Uh, you know, they're not um, you know typically in higher risk products. If you know, when we look at the numbers, we see um, I think the numbers about eleven uh, percent. Um, of our customers are trading options and an even smaller amount. Um, I think last time I looked, it was closer to something around 2% um, trade the more complex, you know, spread option strategies. So think about the overall customer base. That's a, that's a fairly um, limited portion. Um, the rest again are in, are in uh, stocks and ETFs. And I, I think, you know, we, we obviously is, you know, we think about policymakers have been talking for decades about getting more retail into the market, getting more people invested in stocks and ETFs. I think that's happening on Robinhood. I think it's happening on other platforms too, um, and that's a and that's a really good thing. So, you know, I, I view this as a very very positive um, development all around, and and obviously hope it it continues and it grows even more. So another another note about our our customers. So you know, we actually do uh, surveys and we look at kind of the demographics of our customer base and who's using the product. And one of the things we see is that our customers are actually. Uh, that they track or uh, are over-indexed with the U.S. population's demographic makeup. So, you know, when we look at our platform, we we see you know more uh, diverse investors um, than than uh, incumbent firms, which I think uh, is a really really good thing as well. Lucas, you know, you talked a little bit about how the platform is being utilized by more folks and. You know, we really want to know, you know, to align that with Robinhood's mission of of making investing more accessible. You know, what is the how there? What is Robinhood doing that's giving this access to to more more folks than than had in the past? Is it just good branding and, and a reputation on Reddit, or is there some other uh, you know blocking and tackling being done by Robinhood to reach out and make that an accessible investing environment? Yeah, you know, look, I I think it goes back to what you guys were saying before when you read our mission statement and what we were trying to achieve, and and you know, Vlad's um, Vlad's statements I think are really on on point. Um, you know, just take a look at um, the retail brokerage industry and retail investing before Robinhood came along. So you had um, a lot of firms taking payment for order flow, right? And they were charging commissions of 5 to $10 per trade, let's say, on top of that, right? If you're a customer and you want to place a $50 or $100 trade, you know, which again, a lot of people are doing these days, think about how, um, how significantly uh, higher your investment has to uh, grow in order to just make up that commission. On top of that, you had account minimums at a lot of places, right? So um, a brokerage or, uh, you know, another platform is not going to take your account unless you have, let's say, 2500 bucks in it or $5,000 in it. That kept a lot of people out of the markets who didn't have that kind of money to even get started. Um, and then, you know, once you get, let's say you were fortunate enough to get on there, right? Um, let's say you actually had to go to a human broker at an office, right? At your branch office down the street, let's say one was even available to you. You get in there, you start talking about stocks and, and maybe your broker says, Hey, I think you should buy Apple, right? Or I think you should buy Google or Berkshire Hathaway. Those, those stocks trade at thousands of dollars a share. Now, how am I going to, as, as a investor of modest means with, with maybe not a lot of experience, how am I going to get into those big stocks that we, of course, you know, um, not not those in particular, but these large cap stocks that a lot of people want retail investors to get into. Um, compare that to where we are now, right? Um, we have, you know, you know, I think it's a large part as a result of Robinhood really upending the industry. Commissions have gone away. So now, you know, no commission trading. Account minimums don't exist on Robinhood, right? We've pioneered that no commission, uh, no account minimum model. So now you can get started with, you know, 
five dollars, a dollar, whatever it is. It's easy to sign up for an account. You can get on there, you can place your first trade. Um, you don't have to maintain a, a, a costly account minimum. You're not getting charged five to ten dollars to make that trade. And because of um, you know, I think more innovative products like fractional share trading, you can now get into these um, big name stocks and ETFs uh, without having to pay the entire price per share. You can you can get it for a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars. On Robinhood, which I think is really cool, you can set up a recurring investment, right? So let's say I want to put you know five dollars every week into those you know few stocks or ETFs I own. You can do that now too. And then I think we've built on that, right? So look at you know more and more products coming out the door, whether it's IPO access, um, things like our new trade recommendation product, um, you know, again, which is you know very very low cost to do, and you don't need to uh, call a human being up to to get that trade recommendation. You know, you're you're getting a recommendation, um, you know, among uh, four. Uh, try you know basically low cost ETFs. So um, you know I think I think that's when when we talk about um, you know providing access, we're talking about that. And I kind of I think about it in and I think we at Robinhood think about this in in three different buckets, right? You have the financial barriers. We talked about those commissions, account minimums, you know fractional share trading that didn't exist before. Um, that's a that was a big issue that kept a lot of people out um, from the financial perspective. I think we've done a lot to address that, we'll continue to do more. Second one is educational. Um, you know, the, the, you know, maybe the average retail investor um, prior to Robinhood and other platforms coming on the scene didn't have that type of digestible and relatable content to help them educate themselves to make their own investment decisions. I think we've upended that too with products like Robinhood Learn, which is available to everybody, not just our customers has over 650 articles on the websites visited by millions and millions of people. Um, you know, it's great educational content. We have snacks, um, the newsletter the podcast to kind of help you, um, you know, you know, learn more about the what's going on in the market. I'm sure we'll talk about that more um, as we go on today. And then the third bucket is the emotional barriers, right? So again, think, you know, prior to Robinhood, you were maybe going on a stodgy website um, and trying to figure out how to place a trade or you're trying to go to a human being at your branch office, you know, it can be intimidating. Um, you know, people these days want to conduct commerce and even invest on their phones. Um, and so Robinhood just built uh, just an amazingly, I think, intuitive, easy to use and accessible platform that everyone can understand um, and that everyone can use. And I think that's broken down a lot of emotional barriers uh, that kept people out of the markets. Yeah, it's it's helpful to hear about how you know sort of removing barriers, educating people, making it uh, easy and and accessible, maybe even intuitive, helps you achieve your your mission of democratizing finance. I know I've, I've said it a few times now, but it it's sort of like the theme that that runs through Robinhood. I think when you look at the app or when you look on the website. But I know you're also feeling pressure from any number of sources internally and externally, whether that's investors, the news, regulators. Um, I'm sure that creates challenges. So, I mean, how is Robinhood as an organization staying true to that mission? How how do you continue to achieve those goals? Yeah, I think it's it's continuing to break down more and more barriers. Right, we've we've broken down a number of them across those three areas I talked about. You know, economic, educational, and emotional. But there are barriers that still remain, um, both within the traditional equities markets, um, crypto, another area. And then of course there are other areas of finance um, that have you know still legacy barriers in place. 
um, that, that I think, you know, will be addressed over time. And so, you know, I think uh, continuing to identify what um, is keeping people out of the markets um, and, and what's preventing them from investing and saving for their futures is what we need to continue to focus on and continue to break down those barriers. That's not just new products um, that, that could be, you know, new areas of the markets that have traditionally been, um, you know, closed off for the average retail investor. Uh, again, it goes back to education um, and the way that, you know, our, our platform looks and feels continuing to make sure that, you know, we really have um, the best, um, you know, offerings there too. So people feel really comfortable, um, you know, uh, putting their savings and hard-earned money to work um, and that they feel as safe as possible doing it um, on our platform. So I think at, at this point, we, we know an awful lot about Robinhood and, and what you all are doing over there to try to, to make investing easier for more people. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily tell us about you. And Lucas, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you while we've got you here. So tell us a bit about your background and your career. I know you've spent a, a lot of time in public service on the Hill and at the SEC. So, you know, how did you find your way to Robinhood and how does your experience inform the job that you're doing today? Yeah. So like I, I figured out pretty early on in college that I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. That was, you know, of course, everyone's dream. It was mine. Um, didn't quite work yeah, out. Same. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I actually did um, an investment banking internship when I was in college um, and it was a lot of fun. My dad wanted me to do it um, as a career. And, you know, of course, what does any, uh, you know, 19 or 20 year old kid in college do when their dad wants them to do something, you, you know, I slightly rebelled and said, no, no, I'm interested in politics and law and I'm going to go do that. Um, and so I, I went down and went to law school down in, in this area in DC and um, I ended up staying. Uh, I thought originally I was going to be a trial lawyer, then I was going to be a pellet lawyer. And it just, that stuff was really interesting to me at the time. And right out of law school, I went to, you know, a big law firm here in DC, Wilmer Hale, where I ended up uh, spending some time over the years and um, it's a wonderful firm. Um, I loved my time there. And, and I, when I was a young associate, I got put on a securities uh, SEC investigation. Um, and I loved it. It was like the intersection of um, business and law and policy. Um, and, and it kind of just captured my uh, attention and interest. Um, and I never went back. So I spent uh, just a little less than two years as a young associate at Wilmer and thought I was going to you know, make a run at the law firm um, and, and be a lawyer uh, at Wilmer for a while. And it just so happened that um, I got a great opportunity to go over to the SEC and be an enforcement lawyer. Um, and so I jumped at that chance and, and spent a couple of years in the enforcement division post-financial crisis. I had, you know, fortunately uh, been introduced to a guy by the name of Dan Gallagher when I was at Wilmer. Um, and we uh, got working on some cases together. Um, I don't know if you all remember the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission uh, that was formed after after the crash, um, and and we did that uh, together uh, for a short period of time. But um, just really, really loved working for Dan. And um, when I got the opportunity to go over to the SEC, he gave me some great advice and helped me kind of get situated there. And we kept in touch. And uh, as luck would have it, he was named a commissioner uh, a couple years later. Um, and he called me up and said, "Hey, I've got uh, I've got a slot open uh, as a counsel. Do you want to come up and do that for a little bit?" And, course, I jumped at the opportunity to do that. Uh, and I spent some time as a counsel to Dan focusing largely on enforcement and a little bit of trading in markets, uh, you know, kind of capital markets, regulatory and policy issues for him. 
um, when that kind of was was coming to a close, we we talked a little bit, and I said, you know, I'd love to go over and and work on the hill. It always kind of fascinated me, right? I got this whole, I got the business and the law side of it, but I never quite got the full policy side. And uh, I, I was able to go over and and do um, a couple of years on the House Financial Services Committee on the on the Capital Markets Subcommittee. As you know, it's just really lucky, great opportunities uh, coming my way, and I just said I'll, I'm gonna jump to the next one, and the next one was going over to work for uh, the Senate Banking Committee uh, as, a, as an investigator. I uh, did that for a year um, under Chairman Shelby. Um, his uh, time as chair ended up expiring. And so um, I was looking for the next thing and, and reunited with uh, Dan Gallagher again at uh, a financial consulting firm that Paul Atkins, who was also another former SEC commissioner started here called Potomac Global Partners. Um, and I did that uh, for a year and during that year, um, I actually got introduced by Dan uh, to a guy by the name of Jay Clayton, um, who at the time was a partner up at Sullivan Cromwell in New York City, um, and and just got to know him over the course of the year. Uh, obviously, a fantastic guy, and um, you know he ended up being appointed as uh, as the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, and and said to me uh, as we kind of talked more about what to expect, hey, do you want to come and be my chief of staff? Um, and that was obviously. A no-brainer. So that's how I ended up back again at the SEC um, for just under two and a half years um, of uh, Chairman Clayton's term, um, and and just a great experience for me. So uh, after that, um, I ended up going back to Wilmer again um, and and reuniting with with that guy again, Dan Gallagher. Uh, he was leaving um, a pharmaceutical company where he was the chief legal officer, and we got to talking about uh, what could be fun to do next, and we decided we would. You know, kind of go back to Wilmer, and he was going to take over the securities group there. Um, he's, he became the deputy uh, under Bill McLucas, you know, another legend of the securities enforcement bar. Um, and so went back there and was having a blast. And um, of course, things changed yet again very quickly, much quicker than I thought. Um, you know, Dan uh, got an offer to become the chief legal officer of Robinhood. Um, that's a company that I had not heard of until I went to the SEC. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of coming on the scene at that point in time, right? This was a little bit pre-pandemic, uh, but kind of getting closer, uh, you know, to the, to the point where we were locked down and, and, and obviously more retail investors got involved in the market. Um, but uh, it just sounded like a really fun opportunity. It's been quite, uh, uh, you know, an interesting period of time for me. Um, I love the background and talking about all the professional um experiences you've had. It's variegated, it's interesting, and, and it seems like you're pivoting a lot based on the markets and, and based on your career. Uh, it brings to mind a, a certain football coach who maybe didn't pivot so well uh, on Saturday night uh, against my Buffalo Bills. Lucas, oh, is it true no. that you're a New England Patriots fan? And <laughs> and how do you feel today versus, I don't know, maybe two, three weeks ago? So now everyone's going to hate me because, of course, I'm a Patriots fan. <laughs> um, and you know what, I, I mean, there's only so many times you can win, right? So you, you kind of have to oh, give my. other folks oh. a chance. <laughs> Listen, if you need some help with the coverage at uh, Robin Hood, feel free to ring up Micah Hyde. You may remember his great interception on the Patriots' first uh, drive that took away a touchdown and led the Bills uh, on to their victory. So it, enough about background. We don't need to come to fisticuffs here in our, in our remote environment, Lucas. But thanks for talking about your story and, and how you ended up at Robin Hood. Now, when this episode airs, this will have been almost exactly one year uh, since meme stock mania became 
part of our uh, lexicon in the securities environment world. Uh, markets have obviously been different. They've changed. Uh, a lot is probably never going to be the same again uh, for good reasons, maybe some so not so good. Uh, you'll recall during that period of uh, wild volatility uh, in all directions, Robinhood temporarily suspended trading in or purchases of uh, the two you know, leading meme stocks at the time, GameStop and AMC. Uh, obviously, Kurt, we talked, everybody who's heard this podcast at least once before is aware of, of the story. But Lucas, we're interested kind of on the inside take. What was it like being at Robinhood during that time period? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, obviously, um, a very unique thing um, for for us as a company to go through, for the industry to go through. Um, you know, certainly um, a number of our customers were uh, not happy with the way things played out on, on January 28th, and we certainly understand that. Um, you know, look, things were uh, uh, obviously moving very quickly. Uh, that morning, that day, certainly even that that week, um, we had a period, as you said, of unprecedented market volatility, right? I think it was called a five sigma event by um, by one outlet, um, you know? And so if you think back in the number of days in the market, that that probably should have never happened, but it did. Um, you know, look, I, I think we as a company, um, you know, we're very, very focused on um, doing what we needed to do to manage risk. Uh, to make sure we um, obviously met our clearinghouse deposit requirements, um, and, and make sure obviously that that uh, our platform was available um, to the vast majority of our of our customers. Um, you know, certainly when something like that happens, you're going to learn from it, um, and you're going to try to take out of it, um, you know, the lessons you can to to improve. And we certainly did that. Um, you know, you saw us raise a significant amount of additional capital. Um, you know, we were obviously. Uh, you know, we were in compliance. We had excess net capital under SEC rules during that week leading up to January 28th. So, um, but we also, you know, uh, the company went out and, and raised additional uh, funds. Um, you know, again, we, we had been, uh, you know, engaged in an effort well well before January 28th um, to continue to enhance our risk uh, operations, our compliance operations. That's something obviously we doubled down on. Um, you know, after January 28th, uh, to make sure that, you know, we're able to provide the best experience for our customers. Um, you know, another thing we do that, that we did that, that I wouldn't say is necessarily, uh, you know, caused by January 28th, but, um, you know, certainly a lot of investment at Robinhood and customer support. Um, we have 24 seven, you know, live voice support now, uh, available through the app. Um, and just another area where we're trying to, to listen to feedback, learn from, um, you know, these events over the last several years and, and improve uh, as much as we can. So yeah, obviously a lot of, a lot of change. I mean, whenever you're dealing with a five Sigma event, I, I guess you're, you're in a reactionary posture for some amount of time, right? But it's about how you, as you say, sort of learn and move forward. Um, what, what are some of the, the, the permanent changes you would say to the way that Robinhood sort of delivers its products or services, you know, what, how, what did you take away that have changed the way that you do business? Yeah, again, I, I, I would say that there have been a lot of permanent changes that have happened since I've been here. I started at Robinhood back in July of 2020. Um, and I saw it right away. Um, you know, these things, again, they were going back before January 28th where, you know, there's been a, you know, obviously um, our, our CEO, our CLO have, and, and the rest of our, our executive team have really prioritized building out legal and compliance. 
um, among many other areas of the company, that's been a, a big priority, right? So I saw that um, right when I came in the door. Um, obviously, it started with people like Dan Gallagher, um, you know, but it's kind of continued on. We brought in two new chief compliance officers into the brokerage entities, um, Norm Ashkenaz, who um, spent a number of years at Fidelity, Kelly Zagatis, another industry veteran, um, and, and you know, continued to add add the right people as we as we progressed here and now have a new chief brokerage officer, a new head of risk, things like that. So obviously building the people, building the compliance systems, um, building out the legal department. Um, you know, when I started, we were a much smaller legal team than we are now today. Um, and we're growing to meet the demands of the platform um, and, of, and of the growth. So, you know, I think that is, you know, one one way that we've really tried to address the, you know, the, the many challenges we've had and opportunities we've had um, over the last year and a half, I, you know, I, I think focusing a radical focus on our customers, we talk about that, right? Um, continuing again to make sure that we have the products that, that they want that help them access the markets, that they have um, those products delivered in as safe as a way as, as possible. Obviously, capital markets um, carry risk um, inherently, but we want to make sure um, we're a safety first company. We want to make sure we're doing what we can to provide as safe an experience as possible. And when customers come to our platform to invest, you know, uh, we did, a, we did have done a lot in terms of scaling our systems to handle the customer growth and market volatility that we've seen ton of investment there. Um, you know, and again, doubling down on things like customer support and education, really important. So I don't know if January 28th really, um, fundamentally changed the way um, we look at our business, um, but I think it certainly uh, reinforced what we were trying to do from the very beginning, at least since I've been here. You talk a lot about you know, how you're approaching customers in the market and providing those services with your mission. How about the culture internally at Robinhood? Has there been kind of a shift at all in, in the way that the culture is being approached after that event, or, or how are things going generally uh, from a cultural perspective? It's one of the reasons that um, drew me to Robinhood was the culture. Um, you know, I think you have this unique um, combination of a of a Silicon Valley um, fintech company that is disrupting industries. I think in really good ways, um, and you have the heavily heavily regulated side of the business, which are the brokerage entities and obviously crypto entities regulated um, on different levels. And so, um, you know, I think that culture from the start has been one of compliance taking. The regulations very seriously. Um, again, did a ton of work to uh, enhance in those areas, get get the right people on board, get the right systems and processes in place. Um, but you know, I, I think that that compliance uh, culture is 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 extremely important. Um, you know, I I think what what you you see out of these types of situations like January twenty eighth is that again you're learning from these situations. You're becoming a better and a stronger company as a result of that. Um, you don't want to have to go through uh, events like that, of course, um, but I, I do think it's made us uh, a stronger company, a company that's better able to um, deliver for the customer. You talked a little bit about crypto, and I know you guys have rolled out fractional shares as well, uh, some of the new programs and platforms that Robinhood's offering its its customers. What do those changes mean for Robinhood investors? Yeah, I think it means, um, you know, in the existing lines of business, more opportunities to get involved in the markets, more tools available to customers, right? Whether it's self-directed customers, 
or for example, our new trade recommendation product, right? Where if you're a customer and you're getting started and you want to, you know, you want to diversify portfolio of ETFs to get, to get going, um, you can now get that um, at your fingertips on your app. Um, and you're not paying a commission to, to get that recommendation. Um, you know, and it also, again, it means providing um, more access to more products to more markets um, and coupling that with the right education um, and the right tools to so that folks can can navigate these markets on their own um, and make informed choices that that they think are right for them. All right, we want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the regulatory environment uh, in which you know Robin Hood plays, and and maybe about some potential reforms that could be on the horizon. Uh, you know, as you know well, Lucas, there have been several congressional hearings, uh, tons of speculation about potential regulatory reform that could impact Robin Hood's business. You know, it, I, I constantly say on this podcast and elsewhere, I think it's remarkable how some pretty technical, uh, you know, market structure issues have become like kitchen table topics over the last year. Yeah. It's it's incredible to hear the things that, you know, like my buddies are talking about on golf trips. I'm like, man, that sounds like work. Can we go back to can we go back to playing golf, please? Uh, but so we want to touch on a few of those things, like settlement cycles, uh, some things that were flagged in the SEC's GameStop report. Uh, these digital engagement practices, or DEPs, sometimes known as gamification, just to get your take on some of the things that that may be changing in the market. Um, but let's start with. T plus zero. And of course, by T plus zero, I am referring to the settlement cycle. It's one of the enduring topics that came out of the meme stock trading frenzy uh, and, and sort of kicked off a much needed conversation about the settlement cycle, the settlement cycle for stock trading. The settlement cycle, of course, refers to the time between the trade date when an order is executed in the market and the settlement date when participants exchange cash for securities and a trade is considered Final. Currently, most equities are on a two-day settlement cycle known as T plus two. That's trade date plus two days. Uh, there has been a push by some market participants, including the DTCC, uh, which is a, a clearing agency, to move to a T plus one settlement cycle. Uh, but after some of the things that happened last January, Robinhood stated publicly that they would love to see the markets move to a T plus zero settlement cycle. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, Robinhood's thoughts on the settlement cycle and, and where things might be heading. Well, I really hope you guys are not talking about uh, the clearance and settlement cycle on your golf trips. Um, but <laughs> not quite that, not quite that <laughs> in the weeds. But yeah. Not that wonky yet. <laughs> Uh, look, so I think January 28th um, exposed, uh, you know, what I think is what is an antiquated, a somewhat antiquated um, system that we still have for for clearing and settling trades. Um, you know, the the settlement cycle obviously has been um, getting reduced, uh, has been reduced over time by the SEC. Right, it went from T5 to I think T3, T3 to T2. It took us um, the better part of almost, you know, what, 20 years, 1995 uh, to, I think, 2017 to get down to T2. Um, and, you know, when, when, when we looked at what happened after January 28th, you know, you can see that this T plus two cycle, um, it, it obviously ha it carries some risk um, or introduces some risk into the system because you have an extra 
uh, period of time there before uh, the trades are settled and and the uh, proceeds are distributed out um, to the customer. And so uh, if you can mitigate that risk by reducing the settlement cycle, um, I think it just, uh, I think as you've seen DTCC, the SEC, um, you know, other uh, other market participants and observers have all agreed that that's, that that's a good thing and we should aim for that. Um, you know, I, I just don't think it's in Robinhood's DNA to say, um, let's spend another, you know, several years going from T2 to T1. Um, you know, look, we, T1 is, is certainly an improvement. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say it isn't. But uh, I think, you know, we're a company that's used technology to, to disrupt industries for the better. And I think we believe that the technology is there to get us uh, to a place that's better than T1, whether that's same day settlement or eventually real time settlement. Um, you know, and so that's that's why we're uh, that's I think why why we came out and pushed for T0 rather than something more modest. Uh, Lucas, we also kind of want your reaction to that uh, famous or infamous uh, GameStop report from the commission back, I believe, in October. Uh, for those looking for a background on that, we actually had the opportunity to speak with the Healthy Markets Executive Director, Ty Galosh, good friend of the podcast, uh, back on our episode that came out on November 4th. So to summarize, in, in November, the SEC published a staff report on equity and options market structure conditions in early 2021 which focused on the January 28th and, and January generally trading activity in GameStop, the most famous of those meme stocks, which the SEC notes. Because the meme stock episode raised several questions about market structure, the staff report provides an overview of the equity and options market structure that may impact individual investors. And as I'm sure all of you listeners out there heard on our episode about this, the report was kind of a nothing burger from everybody in the markets, uh, specifically as it relates to Robinhood. It was kind of a mixed yeah. bag. Uh, it largely supported Robinhood's statements about factors that led it to suspend purchases of GameStop and other meme stocks, but also hinted at some potential regulatory changes or pending scrutiny that could impact Robinhood's platform. So, Lucas, you know, what's your take on the GameStop report? How was it received and, and how has Robinhood reacted uh, in its wake? Yeah, so I, I, as you know, being a former staffer at the SEC, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the staff over there and the staff in trading and markets. And I, and I think, you know, look, for the majority of the report, uh, to me, it was pretty thoughtful and it was, you know, trying to be uh, data driven. And I think that's what um, the SEC staff historically has done in these types of situations and, and will continue to do. And, and so I, I do have a lot of respect for uh, for the staff and, and their kind of the commission process to um, that, that ends up resulting in these types of reports, you know, it, it'll come as no surprise to you that um, obviously disagree with, uh, you know, a couple of the policy prescriptions in there um, to, you know, uh, on the one hand, they, they raise things like the settlement cycle, which we talked about, um, you know, and, and certainly they seem committed to doing that. And that's great. Um, but there were also um, uh, policy prescriptions raised Concerning payment forward flow and gamification, um, that that I would argue had nothing to do with the events of January 28th, um, and and largely our solutions in search of problems, and and you know depending on where uh, the commission comes out on this could actually uh, make the situation worse for retail investors. Um, so look, you know at the end of the day, um, if folks want to say that that report uh, was a nothing burger, um, you know. The, the true story that we now know about January 28th 
um, just isn't very sensational, right? Um, you know, it, it was at least for Robinhood, and I think other firms had to take similar types of actions. We're, we're trying to manage risk, um, and for us, obviously, um, meeting our clearinghouse deposit requirements—that's not—that's uh, not, that's not uh, for some people uh, what they want to hear, right? Some people like the conspiracy theories and uh, about collusion, and things like that, and 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 obviously, the, um, I think the you know, in my read, the SEC report. Um, you know, kind of debunks that and, and supports, uh, you know, what what uh, we've said all along, um, you know, in terms of what happened that day. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the, the popular take is that it did debunk some of those conspiracy theories about what was going on. And of course, that's that's good for Robin Hood. You know, the truth will out. And, and there it is. Um, you know, for us uh, objective observers, it wasn't as exciting as it might have been, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you all are, are just fine with that. Uh, <laughs> another topic we want to talk about from a, a sort of regulation or future regulation perspective is gamification. Uh, it's been something we've heard a lot about over the last, let's say, three to six months. It's another one we've talked about here on the podcast with Nebraska law professor James Tierney. Uh, he actually came back to talk to us about it on our New Year's Eve episode. We've heard a lot about it from Chair Gensler. He likes to refer to, um, you know, gamification, or, or he likes to put gamification in a under a larger umbrella of digital engagement practices, and that includes things like so-called nudges on trading platforms. I think it's really unclear how Chair Gensler or the SEC is even thinking about this, whether they will or even could do anything in this space from a regulatory perspective. But it's undoubtedly on your radar at Robinhood. So, uh, you know, tell us, how is Robinhood thinking about or responding to the gamification issue? So, like, we could have a whole two-hour podcast on this and probably not <laughs> run out of things to talk about. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the more interesting policy debates that, in my mind, is going on uh, right now. Um, you know, if if your if your listeners are are interested, we did a comment letter to the SEC where we laid out um, our arguments, uh, which really are cautioning the SEC in this area concerning rulemaking um, in great detail. And so, uh, folks can take a look at that if they want to know exactly where we are in each one of these uh, points with regard to digital engagement practices. But you know, if you, if you just step back and level set for a second, I was when I was on my way into into the office today to do this podcast, um, I got an email from uh, my credit card company and there was like exploding there's like exploding fireworks and confetti on the email and it was telling me how many points i got that year um and for some reason right <laughs> I, we don't hear a lot of, of chatter in the media um, and among policymakers about how terrible that is that i got that email right we're very focused on it in the brokerage space but the reality is uh almost every industry now at least every industry that uh, communicates with their customers or offers products for sale via uh, apps on mobile phones, incorporates a lot of the same things, if not the exact same things that um, mobile first brokerage platforms are doing, uh, whether it's the graphics or the way we communicate through apps, things like that. Um, and so I think it's I think it's important not to lose that context when we think about a specific exercise in SEC policymaking with respect to uh, digital game engagement practices or so-called gamification that were part of a much bigger ecosystem, a much bigger way of of um, of of kind of you know interacting with customers and doing commerce these days. And the idea that um, you know, and I'm not saying this is what the SEC is going to do, but the idea that that uh, we should get rid of it in the brokerage space 
but keep it everywhere else, whether it's on your mobile banking platform or when you go to buy a car um, on an app. Uh, I, I think that just needs to be part of the discussion. Um, and that's totally aside from the you know, First Amendment uh, issues that we've raised. But the other part that I think is really important to, to talk about in this is that I think gamification is not well-defined. And I think, um, you know, our platform has, has, I think, been wrongly tagged with, um, you know, the characterization of, of gamifying investing. When I think about, you know, gamification, I think about things like leaderboards and competitions to trade and badges and, you know, uh, things that are really geared towards how much are you trading, right? What's your level of activity? Lucas, we're talking a lot about the past, right? Kind of the post-January 28th and, and where Robinhood is today. But we're also interested in your take, maybe your crystal ball here about what new regulations or guidance or potentially enforcement actions in the market uh, do you think that the SEC may bring or may or may propose that that could have an impact on Robinhood's business going forward? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's some um, there's a couple of big areas that we we all kind of know about already. One, one's market structure. Um, you know, Chair Gensler has um, talked about payment forwarder flow, talked about off exchange versus on exchange trading. Um, you know, competition or order by order competition. I think he refers to it as. And so, you know, we're obviously expecting a rule proposal to come out of the commission uh, in the near term that addresses those types of market structure issues. Uh, I wish I could tell you where it's going to go. I have no idea and, and, and couldn't really speculate. Um, we're obviously going to, as, as a company, be very active in, in that process. Um, you know, we think there, that payment forward flow is actually a really good deal for customers. Um, we just worked with uh, two professors from MIT and one from University of Texas at Austin, and they put out a paper using market, you know, market data that's publicly available, plus some of uh, our own anonymized Robinhood trade data. And I think what they found is a really compelling case for payment forwarder flow. They found that on average, you get a better price if you go through a broker that, uh, the, you know, has the payment forwarder flow model versus going on exchange for the same trade. Trade. They found that you know the price improvement that customers get. As a result of that model, um, at Robinhood alone, it was $8 billion over the last couple of years. If you add that onto the commission-free model that we pioneered, you can add another $16 billion in counting. It's a tremendous amount of money that's getting put back into the pockets of the retail investor. Um, and so I would argue that the retail investor has it better today than ever, um, that we don't really, we aren't seeing this uh, extreme issue in in the quality of our markets to justify, um, you know, a very aggressive regulation here. I know we've heard the heard the idea that the SEC could ban payment forwarder flow. Um, you know, I just don't, I don't, I don't think there's a, a case to be made for that. But you know, we'll see what happens. Um, and and obviously, we, you know, I personally have a lot of faith in the the commission's rulemaking process, the the APA process, and and like I said, we'll be involved and kind of you know try to try to help. Uh, you know, make sure that the, any rulemaking is informed uh, has the data um, that the commission needs to do an economic analysis. Um, you know, second area is crypto. Uh, whether you know, I think on the policy side, obviously there's a there's a there's a lot of um, discussions about around lack of clarity and kind of the need for more clarity. I don't know if that's going to change from a policy standpoint any anytime soon. Um, you know, we've heard Chair Gensler say. Um, 
that that you know uh, firms that that are trading uh, digital asset securities should come in and register. Um, you know, without uh, I, I don't I don't think we're trading digital asset securities, but uh, you know we're we're having conversations with the SEC about how that um, would actually work. What does it mean to register um, as a crypto platform that could trade digital asset securities? Um, and then you know obviously the enforcement angle is on everyone's mind, right? Um, I think folks are. Uh, we've seen some enforcement cases recently. I think we're all expecting to see more. I couldn't tell you what those are going to be or who they're going to be against, um, but would, would would expect the enforcement division to be active in in crypto enforcement. And, and depending on how those cases out could come out, could tell us a lot about the future direction of the regulation of crypto uh, crypto in this country. Lucas, you touched on earlier uh, one of the other pillars kind of, of of Robinhood, and that relates to educating investors, not just providing you know more access and, and that democratization of the markets, but really giving them the opportunity. You referenced, uh, I think, over 600 uh, articles or blog posts about some of the issues that you deal with that are, quote, in plain English, end quote. Uh, obviously, you know, Lucas, I'm an accountant. I'm sure that Robinhood patterned it, this off of the AICPA's Center for Plain English Accounting, I'm sure you've read it cover to cover. Just a great, Kurt. I, I see you. You're I, I obviously don't a big think proponent. That's right at all. Yeah. yeah no. I, I, I. That seems unlikely. Okay. Uh, go, uh, no. Go. Go on. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, it's, the plain English <laughs> is important, both in accounting and for Robinhood. We'll leave it there. So, talk to us a bit about that critical part of Robinhood services and how that's viewed uh, from your seat. Yeah, I think I have that on my nightstand. Um, no, no. Look, I. You're. You're exactly right. I. I obviously, you know. That idea of plain English that the AICPA um, is espousing there is really important uh, when it comes to educating um, or helping uh, customers educate themselves in, in the retail investing space. I think it's, you know, obviously part of the fabric of Robinhood. It's core to everything we do when we think about um, either new products or, uh, you know, improvements to existing products. We also think about how do we provide the right education to go along with that, right? So. Um, you know, something I think we, you know, do really effectively is is in-app education. I think we'll get better and better at that. Um, we're, we're very focused on it. So, you know, when you go into Robinhood now, there are modules that go from, you know, the basics of what the stock market is all the way up to if you're a qualified options trader, you can get educational content um, around, you know, uh, options trading strategies. Uh, when you go from our first level options trading to our second level, there's a flow that kind of explain spread trades and things like that. So what you're seeing at Robinhood is, is it's getting integrated into the platform. It's available to the investor at you know key times in their investment journey. And it's being provided in a way that's uh, what I think is more easily digestible. It's more relevant um, to the customer that's using, that's using our platform. Um, we don't want to, you know, just throw up a hundred videos that are two hours long explaining you know, all the different concepts that get involved in investing. I think people obviously tune those out very quickly. So we are very focused on not just providing more education, but I think providing the right education delivered the right ways, right? Whether that's your ability to go on Robinhood Learn and read something that, you know, is going to be not not uh, as technical maybe as other sites, um, but is going to do a great job of explaining the basics, um, you know, through your journey in the app where, you know, you can get a tour of what different things mean in the app, um, you know, different you know, parts of the of the displays to the, the modules that I was talking about. So 
um, again, you know, really, really fundamental um, uh, to what we're trying to do. And of course, the the education, the educational materials aren't limited to sort of written materials or things that are available on the app. You have a number of other resources. My favorite, of course, is Robin Hood Snacks, your very own podcast. Uh, Snacks is digestible business news for you, according to the disclaimer. More on that in just a second. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about some of the other resources that are available to investors. Yeah, I mean, Snacks is is a really, I think, amazing um, product. So our newsletter um, is uh, already one of the most widely consumed newsletters in the U.S. Um, I think we had about 23 million unique readers in the third quarter of 2021, which is just incredible. Um, the podcast that the Snacks folks do um, was downloaded uh, 10 over 10 million times in that same quarter. Uh, same. So- same. Yeah, same yeah. for us, right, Kurt? Yeah, everybody, just billion, millions and billions. I think. Let me check the stats. So, I, look, it's it's. I think it, I think they're really important um, products for us, right? Um, you know, the 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 two guys that do them are uh, are really amazing, and they do a great job of kind of distilling this stuff down. The entire team does a great job of distilling all of these topics down, so that. Um, you know, it's it's digestible and you can kind of understand it. And and obviously it's provided in a format that's today very relevant for people. Um, I try to listen to it after I drop my uh, three and a half year old off at, at preschool. Um, and it's oh, always, I thought you were going to say really ap- after you finish the insecurities podcast, then you, you switch over to Robin Hood. <laughs> that one I do before I, I break. Got it. OK, good. Yeah. Uh, helps her fall asleep in the car. Right? Um, <laughs> all right. So, I mean, I, I, I know that you are used to disclaimers. You've spent time on the Hill. You've spent time uh, at, at the SEC, you know, working in the chair's office, working in a commissioner's office. The concept of disclaimers has to has to be something you're very familiar with. And, you know, we warned you that we were going to quiz you on the Robin Hood Snacks podcast disclaimer, which for those of you who haven't heard it is a wrap at the beginning of every episode. Wild. Do you know the lyrics to the disclaimer? Well, first of all, nobody wants to hear me sing, let alone uh, rap. But uh, I, I think I know most of them. But I will say that the most impressive part is anybody who can rap um, a member of FINRA and SIPC should get a ton of credit. Yeah. Um, that that's like my favorite part every time. And I'm always thinking to myself, like, I would have never figured out how to do that. <laughs> it sounds so easy, but I think it's not. No, it, it's it's amazing. I mean, it, I actually have them in front of me. I'm not going to wrap it either. But, you know, to, to weave in, uh, we're not recommending any securities. It's not a research report or investment advice. It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So kudos to the team and whoever wrote those lyrics. It, it's it's pretty amazing. I love it. All right. I think, uh, Lucas, now's the time for our disclaimer. We are going to pepper you with some trivia questions or some some gotchas all about that famous uh, 'er ne'er-do-well hero of old, Robin Hood. And it's important. We've had to do a lot of work on our our show notes here to to separate Robin Hood, one word, from Robin Hood, the the surname and and the proper name of this individual. So uh, we're going to ask you a few questions here about Robin Hood generally. Kurt, uh, I think you're up first. Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, Robin Hood, the app, its its name comes from its mission to provide everyone with access to financial markets. 
not just the wealthy. There's a lot of symbolism in that name mm-hmm. going back, as as Chris suggested, to Robin Hood, which I think was originally a story that came around in the 15th century in England. Obviously, it was about this mythical character in Nottingham or Nottingham, as we like to say here, who was uh, <laughs> robbing from the rich and, and giving to the poor. Uh I always get stuck on that name because my wife actually worked in Nottingham for a while. So it's like, you know, I have this uh, transatlantic thing going on. Uh, but yeah, we, we want to get your opinion on some of the uh, some of the pop culture references to Robin Hood, some of the movies. Uh, you know, I don't know if you like Errol Flynn going all the way back to 1938, or maybe it was Costner in 91, could have been uh, Carrie Elwes in 1993, uh, famous as one of the men in tights. Uh, but Chris, why, why don't you, you know, let's kick it off. Let's hit him with a couple questions here. I mean, do you have a favorite representation of Robin Hood out there right now, Lucas? Is it the, the Russell Crowe of, I think, what, 2018? Right? I feel like they make a new Robin Hood movie every four or five years. So who's your favorite Robin Hood, Lucas? Uh, it's probably going to be Costner. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit more my vintage. Um, yeah. I didn't mind the Russell Crowe version, but mm-hmm. I think it's got to be Costner. I know the guy that played it most recently, who was in The Kingsman, that one did not... Um, that that one did not uh, resound with me at all. Mm-hmm. No, your same. your your opinion resonates with the ranking of IMDb results for Robin Hood movies in history. So you're <laughs> you're pretty much on pace. Noting that there are two animated representations of Robin Hood in feature films. Uh, the first, I'm sure we all know, is that scoundrel of a fox from the Disney film of 1973. He and his band of woodland creatures help uh, combat the sheriff of Nottingham, Lucas. Do you know the other animated appearance of Robin Hood and the Merry Men? I do not. It is the show-stealing and always memorable representation of them in the very famous Pixar animated movie Shrek. Robin and his band of men find Shrek and Fiona wandering through the forest, and Robin Hood obviously attempts to save the damsel in distress. Uh, his representation here is a bit more uh, Norman, uh, a little bit more French than maybe the the traditional line is. Uh, Monsieur Hood. That's right. He goes by Monsieur Hood and his uh, theme song. And I'll, I'll do some lyrics here. I won't sing them, obviously, as, as the three of us need to avoid that on this podcast. But he says, I steal from the rich and give to the needy. I take a small percentage, but I'm not greedy. I rescue pretty damsels. Man, I'm good. What a guy. Ha ha, Monsieur Hood. Uh, great representation. Also, a little bit contrary to Robin Hood's brand in that he takes a wee percentage uh, of what he takes. But again, that that commission-free trading of Robin Hood, I think, goes flies in the face. So I expect you guys to have already written to Pixar to ask them to change that uh, for you guys to make sure that's represented right. We'll, we'll work on that. We'll get the lawyers involved. <laughs> right after some of those more pressing comment letters and uh, participations in the regulatory process. Uh, Kurt, I know we want to do a little bit of quotation game here as well. Uh, you obviously talked up front with uh, uh, Vlad Tenev's quote uh, about Robin Hood uh, a couple of years ago, uh, which was pretty prescient at the time. Uh, so we're going to hit you with a few quotes here, Lucas, uh, from famous Robin Hood movies. I'll kick it off with the first here. Um, it goes like this. Wait a minute. Robin Hood steals money from my pocket, forcing me to hurt the public, and they love him for it? That's it then. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans, no more merciful beheadings, and call off Christmas. Lucas, is that quote from the movie Prince of Thieves, Men in Tights, or Disney's Robin Hood? I'm going to go with Men in Tights. Final answer. 
Oh, well, you should have phoned a friend because that is Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham in The Prince of Thieves. You're Kevin Costner's favorite movie. I haven't seen that one since, what was it? 91? Yeah, 91. That's right. It's been a while. All right, here we go. Round, round two. Uh, here is the quote. Rob? That's a naughty word. We never rob. Just sort of borrow a bit from those who can afford it. All right, same options. Uh, Men in Tights, Prince of Thieves, or the Disney version? I'm going to go with Prince, or, or sorry, I'm going to go with, yeah, I'm going to go with Prince of Thieves again. Oh, it's the Disney version, unfortunately. I yeah, they're, they're uh, Robin's having a, a conversation with Little John about why they do what they do. Little John's a little confused because he's saying, isn't it bad to take from, from them? And he says, eh. It's not so bad. <laughs> My guess is that the Robin Hood onboarding package when you started in July of 2020, Lucas, did not include famous references to Robin Hood. Is your 0 for 2 here? Yeah, you're going to have to call HR right after you get the lawyer's let the comment know. letter to pick. We don't do a ton of Robin Hood movie trivia. There's, there's a lot of movie <laughs> trivia, but not a, not a Robin Hood movie. Well, we'll hit you with the final one. I'm sure you're going to get it. Just the, the nature and the tone will, will, will belie where it's from. Robin of Loxley? I've just come from Maid Marian, the woman whose heart you've stolen, you prince of thieves, you. I knew her parents before they were taken in the plague. Lord and Lady... B- <laughs> Lord, Lord and Lady Bagel. You know, you two were made for each other. I mean, what a combination. Loxley and Bagel. It can't miss. So, like, this is one of the standardized tests, right? Where if you just select the same one every time, invariably <laughs> yeah. you get some of them, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you guys know what I'm going to go with. Now. Well, uh, that is the famous Mel Brooks playing Rabbi Tuckman in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Loxley and Bagel coming together. I mean, it can't miss combination. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate you having a little fun with us uh, here at the end, Lucas. Uh, you can feel free to take those questions back to your colleagues, uh, spread them around at the next, you know, Robin Hood Zoom happy hour, whatever you need to do. But uh, it's been great to have you. Appreciate all your insights and thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate you guys for having me. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Lucas Moskovitz of Robin Hood. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. 
These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.